This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. It's Mike Wang here alone without JP, and I'm actually in Stuttgart, Germany at the DWG, which is uh, the major spine meeting in Germany. And it's amazing. There's about 2,000 spine surgeons here. And I ran across someone who all our listeners need to know. Her name is Karen Butner-Jantz. And uh, Dr. Butner-Jantz is very, very famous. Uh, Younger people may not know, but she invented essentially the Charité disc. The Charité disc was the first marketed and uh, manufactured disc arthroplasty device in the spine. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Butner-Jantz. Welcome. Thank you. Yes, I know. So we're going to do this in English. I'm sorry. I know German's your, your, your first language. Tell us a little bit about where you're from. You grew up in Berlin? Yes. I grew up not in Berlin, nearby Berlin, in the Spreewald, about 80 kilometers far away from Berlin. And um, it's very nice to be invited um, to speak about the development of the Charitelis. I'm the one developer. The other one is Professor Schallnack. Uh, unfortunately, he died this year, but he has done a really great job. He's 20 years older than me. And um, we started in the beginning of the 80s last century. Wow. And Refresh everybody's memory. So when you were growing up, that was actually East Germany, right? Behind the Iron Curtain, right? When you were a child? Yes, that's right. But I traveled a lot regarding the disc. And uh, in advance, I have done some sport activities. So I traveled too. Yes, you were an athlete, right? What did you do? Yes, a gymnast. Gymnast. I've been a gymnast and took part at Olympic Games and... Wow. Yes. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's amazing. I remember seeing pictures of you uh, when you were competing, and, and I, I did not know you were in the Olympics. So um, let me ask you about the inspiration first, because your your concept of the Charité disc, uh, which is, is, I don't want to say it's a historical piece, it was the stepping stone by which all other discs are, are made. And you know Rolando Garcia, right? Yes, Rolando's, of course. He's a good friend of mine, lives in Miami. He's been on the podcast talking about wine. And uh, Rolando's Activelle is probably the best-selling disc today. But it is, it, I don't want to say it's a copy, but it is definitely a stepping, stepping point off of the Charité, right? There's a lot of similarity. So tell us about the inspiration. What made you think, I'm going to build this device? And then it was sold all over the world for, for, for two decades, for actually three decades, I think. More. More, okay, more. Four decades, wow. More and more. Yes, the spine, motion retaining of the spine was a wide field in the beginning of the 80s. Um, There have been some experiences in advance uh, with ball procedures, means a ball of vitarium or of stainless steel made. Oh, Fernstrom ball. Yes, Fernstrom ball, yes, but not only the only one, Harman. Yeah. Also is known as one of the first. And additionally, McKenzie, they mm-hmm. published. And the other material was a weak one, polyurethane and silicone uh, implanted by Schulman and GNST. But all these things didn't work. So there was nothing about 1980. And so we started in the Charité Hospital in Berlin to get ideas how we can replace a disc by a disc replacement, which really works to replace it. It was the main task. And so we knew material coming from the joint and the prosthetics and thought, okay, polyethylene and metal is a good combination. And so we 
thought about, okay, could be three parts, two plates nearby the vertebrae to fix the prosthesis on the vertebrae and in between a core and all together had to move. So this was the beginning. Yeah, it's a beautiful device. And the end plates are cobalt chrome or not Finally, titanium? we had first model one, then model two, made of stainless steel plates. They haven't been strong enough yeah. to resistance or to to um, yeah to yeah uh, to withstand the high pressure within the intervertebrate space, and so it was switched as a model three to um, chrome cobalt molybdenum plates. Okay. But the material in between the cobalt molybdenum, yes, not cobalt chrome. Cobalt. No, cobalt, chrome, molybdenum. Oh, okay. All three parts. Oh, three parts, okay. Yes, yeah. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for the young people listening, you know, physics, chemistry, metallurgy, all this is very important in, in all the things we do in medicine. So you can get a sense that Dr. Putner Johns really went on an, it was an exploration, an adventure with the four, is it four generations of Charité? There's the third. The third generation, yeah. And it's interesting. So the name Charité is the same name as the hospital, yes. right? Probably the um, biggest, the largest uh, hospital in Europe. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. Yeah, because at the time, like, I think about the Bristol disc was from England, and that became the prestige. Mm -hmm. And it was popular then to name the disc after where they were from. Is that is that the, why it was the case? or No, no. Mm -mm. I, I believe the Bristol was later, but I'm not definitely sure. But I believe it was later. Do yeah, now they don't do the this time? anymore. I think it, the Bristol disc eventually became the prestige, I think. I could be wrong, but, but it's interesting because they don't do this anymore to name a device after a place. Like yeah. nowadays when they invent something, they don't name it after it the location. It was a cervical spine. Yes, yes. yes. But, but it was it, how did you come up with the name to name it after the hospital? Was that something that was legal or you just say, well, it's just natural that it would be called Charité? We thought it's the best idea. Why mm -hmm. not? And uh, the, at the beginning, we had the two um, beginnings of the names, S, we Shelnak, S, Shelnak, and B, we S, Bidnayan. So we thought, okay, S, B, Charité. Yeah, okay, okay. Interesting, interesting. Yes. <laughs> so I want to I switch gears a little bit because I think uh, the Charité has been the most studied and most published disc. Obviously, there's, as you said, up to up to 40 year follow up on some patients, right? Really an amazing device and, and really set the stage for the future, right? It really, the science there was amazing. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about what it's like being uh, and you're an orthopedic surgeon, correct? Yes, yes. Did you train in orthopedic residency and then do spine? How did you come to spine? Uh, at, fir at first, I started with uh, joint anaprosthetics and with other orthopedic surgeries, and then we started to develop the total disc. And I continued as a head physician. I have been it for more than 20 years, a head physician of two, oh. cl two clinics last four years. And so I had uh, to do other surgeries as well, uh, total hips, total knees. I see. But so you had experience. The main, yes. The main, the main focus was on the spine the last year. Yeah. So I've noticed that in Germany, it's a little different mm -hmm. in America, either orthopedic or neuro. But in, in Germany, for example, you have general surgeons that do trauma spine, right? Yeah. They're not either. And then you came from the, we call it joint reconstruction world, right? Mm -hmm. And then developed into a spine surgeon from that. Yes, I have a, had a broad field. I have also done arthroscopies and ah. other joint uh, surgeries um, Yeah, to correct something of the bone, whatever. Yeah. I had really a broad field. And it was a big advantage because I could take it to transfer to the spine. Uh, so I had very often good ideas to do 
other things. Yeah, on that's this great. Yes. Yeah, it's nice to go to different fields and bring things yes. in, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I want to I want to ask you about this issue. I think it's a very important issue. You know, spine, neurosurgery, orthopedics are very male-dominated fields. Mm-hmm. Serena, who, who you know at Stanford and used to be UC San Francisco, is, I think she's past president of the Scoliosis Research Society, mm-hmm. or maybe she's, I, I think she just finished her presidency. But, um, you know, Serena stands out as a, as a pioneer. She's a, a female surgeon doing very complex deformity work, right? You similarly, and even before Serena, of course, as a female surgeon, really one of the most important leaders in arthroplasty in the spine. Do you, how do you think that came to pass and why do we not have more women in spine surgery? To me, it's like, it's, it's a puzzle. Like, why is it that that's not happening? Probably because women are responsible for families as well, for yes. the kids and all yes. the things which belong to it. I have a son and uh, he has also his own kids. Uh, that means I'm a grandmother in, in mm-hmm. the time, in the meantime. And uh, it is very busy for women to do everything to care for the husband and <laughs> everything yes. else. So we need time, a lot of care. There is less time yeah. to specialize. And if women are doing it, then of course something is not really very well because you cannot do everything. Yes. The day has 24 hours. <laughs> there is a need of the double. But mm-hmm, I believe that's the main reason. They, yeah. if, Regarding the brain, they are on the same level yeah. as men. There is no problem regarding their hands, their yeah. thoughts, they are on the same level. But uh, how to organize work, this is the main problem. Do you think that a childhood in East Germany actually in some ways may have been more open to that, you know, because I wonder about, I think about Angela Merkel, right? Your former chancellor? Chancellor, And she grew up in Berlin too, right? Yes, uh, she she was born in the northern of uh, no in Hamburg, I believe she was born. Oh, she was born then in West Germany. She came, her family came to the East uh, Germany part, and uh, then she grew up in yes in East Germany yeah. and became the chancellor. Yeah, I mean, do you, let me ask you then maybe can you offer a message? Of encouragement, because I, I know that there we have a lot of listeners, a lot of young people, a yes. lot of women listen to us, and for people thinking about spine, you know, like spine in, in neurosurgery. I'm a neurosurgeon. Yeah. Mo- most of the women go into pediatrics, or functional, or general neurosurgery, and, and to that degree, they do spine, but very very few actually specialize in spine as their whole-time job, like full-time job with fellowship training. Can you offer some message of encouragement or advice for these young women that are considering this? Like, is spine a good field? Yes. I, my, my advantage was probably that I started relatively early to have broad thoughts and not to focus too early, but if you have the aim to work on the spine, then you should work a lot at the beginning. And maybe later you can live with your experience as well. But at the beginning, there is a lot of work, probably more than for joints and other regions of the body. So a big investment when you're young. Yes. Yes, be course. dedicated when yes, you're young. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's a great message. Well, Dr. Butner Jens, I want to be respectful of your time. I know you're very busy at this meeting. Um, thank you for coming on the Neurosurgery Podcast. I know your message will resonate with our listeners. Thank you very much for the invitation, and I wish you all the best. And I'm going to be offering links on our social media so you can see some of the amazing work that Dr. Butner Jens has done uh, in our field. 
Welcome back to the Nursery Podcast. I am still at the DWG in Stuttgart, Germany, and I ran into an old friend, a very, very famous and important person. His name is Bernhard Meyer. Bernhard is the professor and chair at Munich, which is the, I think it's the biggest city in Germany, right? Or one of the nope, biggest? No, Berlin is the biggest Berlin's city. the biggest now, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Munich is my favorite city. München is my favorite city yeah, in yeah. Germany. Bernhard, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, hi, Michael. Pleasure to have you here. So I managed to grab him before he jets out of town, but I, I wanted to go over some very interesting topics with him that I personally feel very passionate about. Um, Bernard, why don't you tell our audience a little about your training background, like, like residency, fellowship, and all that? Yeah. Well, I was basically trained initially um, in Tübingen. This is where I did my internship. And then I spread out and was in Duisburg and finally in Bonn. So this is where I ended my residency with Johannes Schramm. At that time, he was, uh, I'd say, the most influential uh, in your research in, in Germany, maybe Europe. He even had an outreach at that time to the United States. He had a focus on epilepsy surgery. But he very early recognized that spine is a very important part of neurosurgery and integrated that into the program. And this is how I came in contact because he said, Who, who's going to be responsible for that? And I was junior staff and was taken over there. And um, this was my career path. So I, I went to, to see Volker Sontag and at BNI, uh, what you needed to do at that time because he was the man. What year was that? Oh, <laughs> I don't know, people 90s? Know how, people know how old I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was in the 90s. 90s okay. That was in the 92 or 93, something uh-huh. like that. Um, and um, But from then on... Um, very early, I had to, that was my responsibility to develop spine. And then there was the problem that actually neurosurgical departments were mainly focused on the university departments. We focused on brain surgery. So me then applying as a, a neurosurgeon with a focus on spine was unusual. So it, it took, well, not quite some time, but it took two years then, then finally, Munich was brave enough to take me. <laughs> um, and so from the very beginning, I, I had the focus on spine and it developed into one of the largest, if not the largest, uh, spine center in the country. You have an academic background, etc., etc. And all my people then obviously do have the choice to be one or the other. Now, now, I'm going to back you up because you spent time also with Ghazi Yazergil, Yeah, right? yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, sure. Where, where was he then? What, what country? And, uh, he was in Zurich. In Zurich, He was okay. still in Zurich. It was his, I think, his last years in Zurich. He it was the brain surgeon you had to see. Um, so they, they sent us there, uh, the ones they thought uh, probably going to make a career. Um, it was impressive, but um, in a way... You know, if you compare that with the the style that I saw in the B and I, we we were in Zurich was old fashioned. Yeah. But so well, probably you, you as Americans considered typically German European leadership, and and then I saw that that's not the type of leadership I really. <laughs> uh, it's not my role model. He was an excellent surgeon, but that the, the whole concept was not my concept. So I was much more in the 
relaxed uh, American. More American style. Yeah, yeah I yeah, see yeah. you're wearing the cowboy boots, so it's yeah, very American. <laughs> it's one of the things, yeah. So, you know, it's interesting because I met you around that time in the 90s first because our mentors, uh, yours being Johannes Schramm from yeah. Bonn, uh, introduced uh, me to yourself and also Carl Schaller, who's the chairman yeah. in Geneva. And my mentor, of course, Michael Puzo, was good friends with Johannes. And Charles Liu spent time with Johannes as well. He was my co-resident. So you've been all over the world. Now, you know, obviously, everybody listening knows that I am a spine surgeon. I do not do any brain surgery. And for those who don't know how it works outside of America, the European model is that there's a professor. Like, I I have a title professor. I'm tenured, but I'm not the chairman. Um, and so the the professor in any university is the top dog, right? There's one professor usually. No, 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 no. There are more. There are more. You get as you have. Um, you get one with a tenure who has a full professor. Yes, and you can have several associates. Right, but a full. But for example, my title as a full professor with tenure. In, in Europe would translate into something like a chairman, yes. but in America there's lots of people like me in every university, right? The academic title of a full professor yeah. correlates with the chairman. Right, right, that's what I mean. So you are the professor, yes. meaning you're the chairman. So yes. just to, to have the, the synonymous language, because the Americans will be a professor, there's like a thousand professors. In Europe, there's only so many real professors, yes. meaning you're chairman, right, the boss. There is a redundancy of professors uh, which are not what you would consider a professor. So full professors or associate professors, it's actually a rare species. Yeah. Um, In America, they're everywhere. <laughs> so, so the funny thing about it is like this. So I, I, I know a little bit about Europe, and my understanding is that the unlike in America, you know, like you have all the faculty and they do whatever they want, and the chairman's just kind of like, I hate to say it, almost like a middleman now, but at least classically in Europe, the professor represents something different. In other words, I, my understanding is the professor really needs to understand everything about the field. Like, you need to know it. You, it's, you can't just be a... Like, like we have a lot of functional neurosurgeons yeah. in America that are, the profe- that are chairs. They don't know anything about spine, yeah. right? And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But in Europe, if you're the professor, you really are in charge of neurosurgery, right? Yes, you are. But, I mean... It- it became a bit differently. So, obviously, I'm not a functional guy at all. Right. So, I delegate this to someone, and I obviously have to give him uh, all the liberty that he needs to do. He, I, I, since I remain responsible, budget-wise, legally, and so whatever, he needs to not report, but I, I mean, at least we have a conference and we talk about it. But I guess what I'm trying to get at, because I, you know, I, I, you're, you're being too kind and sensitive, I'm trying to get at a very core issue, which is in America, we have 118 programs for training, yeah. right, with residency. We could define that as an academic program, right, yeah. that there's a university, there's a residency, all that. And probably 3 to 5% of those chairs, those leaders, are spine surgeons. Quite unusual, yeah. right? But in Europe, it's even less common, right, that, and you were... Were you the first in Germany to really be spine-focused? Yeah. I, at least I was the first taken a university department of neurosurgery over as someone who had the clear label of being a spine surgeon. And others followed then. So now I would say we're closing to the 3 or 5% of you. <laughs> You're but catching not, up to us. Yeah, we're catching up a bit um, because it became normal. It, there was a reluctancy of the general of our society uh, to accept that spine is important. That mostly because people were afraid of 
you know, the thing they didn't know, they, yeah. you know, doing a little bit of lumbar disc and, and ACDS right. was their thing. But they saw that there's a lot more to spine. And then they were afraid, like, that that's taken over and so on. But that's over. I mean, I mean now with the new generation coming up, the, these people are more relaxed to that. So, yeah, I was probably on the forefront and it was not always easy. Yeah. Especially with my, my mother's society. Mm, and to be, no, I was accepted, but it, it was like, it was looked upon like I was being too obviously, quote unquote, aggressive promoting spine. Yeah. Um, that's, that's over now. They see the advantage that the society has now. But I'll tip my hand a little bit. So I work at Miami. It's my second job. I worked at USC before. And there's a big difference because Miami has always had a spine surgeon as the chair. Yeah. And so the whole feel and the nature is more dynamic and more open and more, I want to say forward thinking, but definitely more broad. And when I see what you did here in, in Munich, it's really fantastic because you're right. At, at the time that we were in training, nobody went into residency saying, I want to be a spine surgeon. No. It, it was unheard of. You wouldn't yeah. even get a spot. <laughs> and, and now things have changed. And so I, I want to ask you about that because it, it's, it's not about spine. It's, it's a mirror of the future. In other words, there are other areas that are going to blossom, right? So what is it like to be at a, in a leadership post when people are still not fully understanding what it is that you do, right? How do you confront that? Actually, that, for me, who likes challenges, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's a good position. So I, I have a I have a goal, a long-term goal, mid-term goal. So I, I know I need, if I want to propagate something like spine being a very important integral part of neurosurgery, that means I have a lot of work to do. What The first thing that you do is you convince people by being with your quality. The quality that you deliver, let's say, in your department locally. Mm -hmm. The quality that you deliver in your training. Mm -hmm. The quality that you deliver by, when we founded the DWG, I was the first education. This is the German and, Society. German Society of Spine, okay. sorry. German Society of Spine Surgeon. I was the first educational chair. And I've, I've formed that educational program that we have mm. now. And since I was also the chair for the European Association, I translated that one-to-one -one on the European Oh, level. for the EANS, yes, the European the Association of exactly. Neurosurgeons. Right. And the same for Eurospine, because I was simultaneously ah. also the educational chair there. So, and nobody could argue against the fact that we deliver quality education. And that, I think that's the key issue. That made it. So nobody, even if they were, you know, reluctant to accept Ah, you need to be as well. they, they had to admit that what we have created is worthwhile and mm -hmm. will, in the end, patients will uh, profit from it. And the, the third step is you need to, because we were looked down as not being academic enough, mm -hmm. that's over. Yeah. That's over. We have more uh, relevant papers in the clinical field, RCTs, you name it, even basic science, that, let's say, uh, skull based surgeon. <laughs> right, right. Why not right. just, I mean, this is a yeah. highly looked upon yes. field. But if you look down academically, my, I mean, the functional guys obviously are very. Yes, academic. they have a big future. The, the oncology guys and so on. But we're not, we're not uh, different nowadays. So let me ask you about this because I know you need to go 
uh, do this session, so I want to be respectful of your time. I want to finish by asking you a question that I asked Karen Butner Jens, which is <laughs> a message from across the Atlantic, right, yeah. to young people, whether they choose to do one field or subspecialty neurosurgery or another, or even generalists. What is the message you want to leave for the young people? A lot of our listeners are in medical school, they're in residency, they're in fellowship. What's the message of leadership that you would leave with them? It's very easy, actually. If you want to do something, you should be dedicated to that. And you should never feel being obliged to do that. It should be something people would, you know, like restrain you, you know, stop. Yeah. Um, and so at the end of your medical school, you just think, what did I like most? Mm-hmm. What, what, what am I elected or whatever? What, what did I think was, quote unquote, a cool thing to do? And this is where you focus and this is where you stay. And this is where you need to be resilient because you will be discouraged by things that happen. Regardless. And regardless. Yeah, regardless. Regardless of that. And you, being resilient is the next important thing. Uh, and then you, you'll, you'll make your way. So you'll I'm going gonna, gonna to editorialize and say, you're saying spine's cool. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. Of I agree. Course. We can do things other people can be relevant to the society. Yes, that's so right. I, if I want to be provocative, by the way, and in, if you be with the Neurosurgical Society, size, if all neuro-oncologists in Germany drop that, society won't feel anything. Yes. You mean the public society? The public society, the yeah. general society. Yeah. So, uh, so, okay, because it's just a couple of brain tumors. But if all spine surgeons are gone, yeah. the public won't uh, notice yeah. it. I mean, <laughs> that's obviously very provocative, but that's just, uh, you know, like tell him then, see, I think spine is an important part of neurosurgery. Yeah. Well, Bernhard, I want to thank you for uh, taking the time to spend... Sure. Uh, your, and share your wisdom with our listeners. Uh, Bernhard Meyer, professor, chairman in Munich, the most important, I think, uh, <laughs> oh, <wow>. university. <laughs> Whoever. <laughs> biggest spine center in probably Europe, right? Yeah. Well, Certainly Germany. Certainly yeah. Germany, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, enjoy the meeting. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having Michael. me. Thanks for having you. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.